As I mentioned earlier, we are moving away from our normal exposition in Hebrews. This morning I would like to address the issue of school shootings in order to give you a biblical perspective. We will be looking at a variety of passages this morning, so just bear with me as I give them to you, and they should be on the overheads here behind me. Well, as you know, we have witnessed another school shooting here recently, another massacre of innocent people, and our hearts break with those parents and loved ones who have lost their children. I believe there were some adults as well that were killed. We grieve for them. We all know that their only hope, their only comfort can come from God who has revealed himself through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. And once again, our citizens and politicians and media pundits scramble to come to grips with how these things can continue to happen. What do we need to do to prevent them? And you hear all manner of ideas. Many will say, oh, it's mental illness. We need better screening, better treatment for the mentally ill. Others will say, no, it's gun control. We need to have more legislation or or even confiscation, and that will take care of the problem. Others will say we need armed guards in the schools. We need to maybe arm the teachers. Others will argue that we also need to curtail media violence and, and even curtail social media where our kids learn to live in a fantasy world and, and they, they need to develop better inter, interpersonal skills. We need to strengthen families. And on and on it goes. But the reality is no one has the silver bullet. No one really knows what to do. So people are left wondering what is wrong with our society. What causes a person to feel absolutely no remorse about killing innocent people? Well, from the outset, let me give you a short answer to that question. Dear friends, this is caused by Satan and sin and the wrath of divine abandonment upon a country that mocks the one true and living God of the Bible. Now let me give you a little more expanded answer. And then I will take you into scripture. Dear friends, it is the testimony of God's word that God has ordained to allow evil to enter into his perfect universe through the voluntary choices of moral creatures in order to somehow dramatically display his glory through his holiness, his wrath, his mercy, his grace, his love, and his power. He allowed Satan to introduce sin and evil into this world. And when Adam fell into sin, the entire human race fell with him. And because of our relationship to Adam, each one of us 
as individuals are conceived in a state of sin and depravity. Satan and sin are therefore the root cause of all evil. And yet God in his infinite mercy and love provided a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for all who would uh, pay the penalty for sins for all who would believe in him. And through Christ, the just wrath of God was satisfied and sinners can be forgiven. They can be justified. They can enjoy the imputed righteousness of Christ and they can be radically transformed into a new creature in Christ. And all who place their faith in him are forgiven, declared righteous. We are born again. And folks, this is the good news of the gospel. But you must understand that Satan and his world system that he leads is opposed to God's plan of redemption. Satan and all who belong to him have seduced unbelievers to believe all manner of lies. Satan and all who belong to him hate the one true God. They hate his plan of redemption. And therefore they conspire together, many people unwittingly, to somehow help him accomplish his nefarious purposes to destroy the kingdom of God. And the United States of America has swallowed his lies hook, line, and sinker. We teach our children that God is not the creator, that we are nothing more than sophisticated germs that somehow slithered out of some primordial swamp millions of years ago. Our youth are taught that the Bible is a silly myth, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. We have removed the God of the Bible from our schools, from our governments, even from our churches in many cases. He is unwelcomed in places of public prominence and discourse so as not to offend those who hate him. We're watching today the systematic destruction of the family unit. We are witnessing today the elimination of the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Today we see an inspired hatred of manhood and fatherhood. And today Bible-believing Christians are increasingly marginalized and mocked, considered by the cultural elite to be nothing more than a Christian version of the Taliban. Hate mongers that are somehow inhibiting the advancement of society. And because of all of this, God has lifted his restraining grace upon this nation and allowed it to freely pursue its idolatry and its immorality and ultimately experience the consequences of, it, of its iniquities. We read in the word of God in Proverbs chapter 14 verse 34 that righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. And yet, most people in our country today do not see 
the national reproach and disgrace that is ours. Therefore, they do not see the corresponding injury and misery that it produces. We have sown the wind, dear friends, and we are now reaping the whirlwind. All of this is nothing more than a harbinger of far greater judgment and will, it will ultimately end in an eternal hell for those who reject Christ. Well, given all of this, it should be no surprise that a wicked young man who is wholly given over to Satan would enter into a school and massacre innocent people. You see, folks, this is what Satan enjoys. Jesus described him as a liar, the father of lies, as a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. Indeed, because of Satan's temptation of Eve and Adam's complicity, sin entered the world, resulting in the murder of every single person that has ever been born. We all die because of Satan, because of sin. But again, our culture mocks this biblical explanation. Every day we hear people lament, schools have become one of the most dangerous places on earth. And I think, my, how utterly ridiculous. Dear friends, the most dangerous place on earth is a mother's womb and people are too blinded by Satan and sin to even see it less than 325 people have been killed in school shootings since 1980 compared to over 46 million babies that have been murdered in their mother's womb during that same time period 4,383 every hour in the United States. Let me put this in perspective. In the four minutes that it took for that shooter to kill 17 people, 292 unborn infants were slaughtered. Well, of course, that's legal. So there is no outrage, there is no mourning. But there is outrage over the school massacre, and rightfully so. Folks, such hypocrisy can only be explained by something supernatural. And that supernatural explanation is Satan, sin, and the wrath of divine abandonment. So amidst the cacophony of competing voices trying to lay claim to the prize of explanation and solution. It's my desire this morning to help anyone who has ears to hear to gain a better understanding of God's perspective of this great tragedy and all others like it, and likewise to explain the glorious remedy that he has provided. Because, dear friends, apart from a thorough understanding of these truths, School shootings and other random acts of violence will remain a mystery. 
one that will defy all attempts to remedy. So I want us to look at four categories this morning. Number one, the power of Satan. Number two, the nature of sin. Number three, the consequences of sin. And finally, the glory of the gospel. First of all, the power of Satan. And I might add that this is going to be very brief, just enough to give give you some sense of these subjects. Our culture's fascination with with horror shows and vampires and werewolves and, and demons and zombies and all those types of things demonstrate how ignorant and naive people are to the reality of Satan and his minions. The term Satan in Hebrew translates the Hebrew word for adversary. He was originally called Lucifer, which means star of the morning or the sun of dawn. In Isaiah 14, we read that he was a a highly intelligent creature of great position and power and pride that rebelled against God. He said, I will make myself like the Most High. And Satan has been joined by a third of the angels in his rivalry against God. And I might add, it's going to be an unsuccessful rebellion against God, according to Revelation 12.4. But dear friends, this is a rebellion of cosmic proportions that we tend to underestimate. According to Scripture, there are two competing kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And as believers, according to Colossians 1 and verse 14, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In scripture, Satan is called the serpent, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, a murderer and the father of lies, a deceiver, the accuser of believers, the evil one, and on it goes. And all of these titles betray the nefarious and malevolent nature of this diabolical creature. According to scripture, Satan and his minions assault God by warring against his holy angels. They seek to annihilate the nation of Israel and thus thwart the promises of God that he made to Abraham and his descendants concerning the Messiah's king to earth to establish his millennial kingdom. We know that he tried to destroy Christ. He tries to destroy everyone that belongs to Christ, that names the name of Christ. And then he also tries to keep non-believers in spiritual darkness so that they will not see the glory of Christ and the gospel. Unbelievers are called, quote, the sons of the wicked one, Matthew thirteen thirty-eight who, quote, turn aside after Satan, 1 Timothy 5, 15. They have the same desires as their father, the devil, John 8, 44. And in Ephesians 2 and verse 2, we read that he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this age that blinds unbelievers so they cannot see Christ in the gospel. We know according to scripture that Satan commands a very well-organized demonic horde. The strata of his forces are described in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 as, quote, rulers, 
powers, world forces of this darkness, and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan functions with his minions in the context of the world, the Greek word cosmos, which means to make order out of chaos. It refers to orderly systems of evil in opposition to God. That's where he works. 1 John 5 and verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he is called the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12, 9. When you think of the cosmos, these, these orderly systems in which he works, think of governments. Think of political parties, educational systems, the media, entertainment organizations, editorial offices, courts of law, and on it goes. We even know that he fills prominent pulpits with false teachers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, no wonder Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You must understand that Satan and his demons, along with other human beings that serve them, do not look like the terrifying creatures that Hollywood tends to depict. But instead, they disguise themselves as winsome, as benevolent, as charismatic, as they position themselves in strategic places, in this orderly system, in government, in our educational systems, and so forth. And of course, their purpose is to deceive, to blind, to persuade, to destroy, to murder. Folks, this explains why we have school shooters and why we have a culture that is fine with murdering millions of unborn infants. And yet, they go absolutely nuts if someone shoots a gorilla in a zoo that is trying to kill a child. While God has not revealed to us a great deal of information about the spirit world of fallen angels, he has made some things clear to us. He warns us, for example, in Ephesians 6 and verse 1, to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then later on in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, folks, we have no power in ourselves. We must tap in to the power of Christ who lives within us and the power of his word. I might add, nowhere in Scripture do we see that we are somehow commanded to bind Satan or rebuke Satan or, or exercise Satan. We're not told of any mystical incantations. We're not told to make up deliverance ministries to free people from his clutches. What we're told to do is give people the gospel. And that's what transforms. That's what delivers. In fact, that, in fact that's what Jesus preached in Luke 4 and verse 18. And in James 4, beginning in verse 7, we're told what to do with Satan. This is why we don't have to be afraid of him. We are told to submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So folks, please hear me. Anyone who underestimates the existence and the power and the stratagems of Satan does so to his own peril. We move from the power of Satan to another formidable enemy that we have. This is one that dwells within, and that is the nature of sin. In 1 John 3 and verse 4, we are told that sin is lawlessness. Sin is high treason. It is rebellion against the Most High God. And both the Hebrew word used for sin in the Old Testament and the primary Greek word that is used in the New Testament mean to miss the mark. That is a failure to obey God's law. To summarize it simply, it is the testimony of Scripture that sin is man's innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of a holy God. Sin, in fact, is the defining disposition of man's very nature. It is intrinsic to us. It defines the essence of of our character. In fact, sin has penetrated and and corrupted the whole of man's being, including his body, his mind, his will, his heart. Sin is both deadly and deceptive. And it is infinitely more offensive to a holy God than we can even begin to imagine. For this reason, it's paramount that you understand the nature of sin, the enemy within, and also embrace the conquering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Solomon's ancient analysis of man's depraved condition reads this way in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Romans 3 and verse 23, we read that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6 and verse 23, we read that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because man is innately a slave to his sin, according to Romans 6, he rejects his creator. And as a result of that, the creator God gradually abandons him to experience the consequences of his lusts and the devastating consequences of his sin. And as he experiences that, one of two things will happen. He will either come to ruin or to repentance. One event radically altered the very nature of man and the planet upon which he would live. And that event was the deliberate rebellion of the first man created, Adam, as I alluded to earlier. Because of Adam's sin in the garden, the entire human race was plunged into sin. We read about this in Romans 5 and verse 12. And every child is conceived in a state of 
sin and depravity. In fact, the psalmist put it this way, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, 5. So folks, it's for this reason that we have mass school shooters, mass shooters in schools, I should say. It's for this reason that we have a myriad of other acts of violence. It's because of Satan and sin. But you never hear anyone talk about this, do you? Except maybe when you come to church. When was the last time you heard your son or daughter come back from college and say, wow, I've learned a lot about sin in my hermodiology class today. Hermodiology being the, the technical name for the, the, the doctrine, the study of sin. Harmatia meaning in Greek to miss the mark. Imagine the outrage if a Christian politician were to suggest that public educators include a biblical course explaining our sin nature. Can you imagine that? Why? I can't imagine anybody saying such a thing. After all, every child's relentless quest for self-esteem must be guarded against such Christian lunacy. I can hear it now. To suggest a child's human nature is so depraved that, that he lives under the sentence of, of divine wrath is the very worst kind of child abuse. In fact, that should be considered a hate crime. Such a cruel doctrine does irreparable damage to a child's fragile self-esteem and, and produces unnecessary and debilitating guilt in his little psyche. Now, why do people have such a reaction? Well, the answer is simple. Because it is the very nature of sin to deceive. It is the power of Satan to deceive, to blind us. And because we are hopelessly biased in our own favor, we will not see our sin unless God does something. And folks, if you do not see your sin, you will not see a need for the Savior. And that is the great strategy. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 9, we read that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Dear friends, we will only see our sin in proportion to our willingness to see the holiness of God. Holiness is the all-encompassing attribute of God. It portrays his, his consummate perfection, his majesty. Uh, it, it portrays his eternal glory. And like no other attribute he used to describe himself in Scripture, holiness stands alone as the, as the defining characteristic of his person. It alone is the quintessential summation of all of his attributes. We are told in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And ultimately, to fear the Lord means to understand the essence of His holiness, His utter transcendence, His utter separation from sin. 
And sadly, most people have a very low view of God, therefore they have a very high view of self. When God is small, sin is insignificant, and man is considered to be basically good. And if you give him the right environment, his true nature will show. By the way, I agree with that. But his true nature will not be good. But dear friends, when we see God as he really is, as the thrice holy Lord of hosts whose glory fills the earth, as Isaiah described, then we would say with him in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, which was a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. Folks, this is the kind of vision every man needs. Every man and every woman needs a soul-shocking vision of the glory and the holiness of God in order to have the proper, proper contrast to the hideous ugliness and darkness of sin. We shake our heads in disgust when we read about a school shooter, and rightfully so. But you know what? we fail to realize that every one of us is capable of committing the very worst of sins. Do you realize that? Paul speaks of this in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. There is none righteous, he says, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Folks, you must understand that apart from the transforming grace of God in salvation, everything that the unsaved person does, even if it is right, has been done for a motivation other than the glory of God, and therefore his actions are displeasing to God. In fact, it's the testimony of Scripture that all that man is and all that man does is fundamentally offensive to a holy God until he comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The unsaved are utterly bereft of that love for God necessary to fulfill the most basic requirement of God's law, and that is to love him supremely and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. God has made it clear that the unsaved man will continue to spiral down in morality, that he has no possible means of salvation or recovery in himself. Dear friends, the moral fibers of every society on earth are rotting because of sin's corruption. And what we see in school shootings is nothing more than one dramatic outward example of this. And yet man continues to shake his puny little fist in God's face 
and dare him to judge him. And for this reason, we read in Romans 1 and verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as we read earlier, because of reason, that is through creation, as well as through conscience, in other words, the evidence that, that God exists and that there is a moral law, because of reason and conscience, man is without excuse. And the more man rejects the light of truth, the more he will be enveloped by the darkness of deception and perish in his sins. And there is perhaps no greater evidence of God's wrath today than in the wrath of divine abandonment in our country whereby we see him lifting his restraining grace from the wickedness of man and giving people over to the consequences of their iniquities. So thirdly, I want to look for a moment at the consequences of sin. This takes us to what Paul describes in Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. By way of reminder, Paul is building his case here for the need for man to be justified by God, that he is wholly unable to find any remedy in, him, in himself, that he is totally depraved, he's in desperate need for a righteousness that is not his own, he needs mercy, he needs forgiveness, he needs the imputed righteousness of Christ, he needs to be born again. The theological term is regeneration. A spiritual rebirth because man is dead spiritually. He is a spiritual cadaver. And regeneration is the instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Well, there are three stages of this abandonment that will ultimately be manifested in an idolatrous person, in a, especially a culture, and each stage of them is progressively worse. The first stage is what I would call sordid immorality, meaning shameful, vile, degrading. Notice Romans 1 and verse 24. Therefore, in other words, because they suppress the truth of who God is in unrighteousness, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored. Dishonored means to be treated with, with shame or contempt. That their bodies might be dishonored among them. This speaks of a perversion of God's intention for sexual relations. This speaks of man having a longing for that which God forbids. A yearning within the human heart, within the inner man that craves what is called here impurity or uncleanness, referring to sexual immorality. To give you some background, in Corinth, for example, in the first century you would find that the cults of the gods of Egypt and Rome and Greece were very prevalent, the most hideous, blasphemous forms of idolatry. And the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was located atop the Acrocorinth, a temple filled with a thousand cult prostitutes. It was a port city filled with sailors and merchants, and they spent their, their money satisfying their lusts. In fact, it was a city that was so immoral 
that the name Corinth became a synonym for gross immorality and debauchery. Temple excavations in Corinth have discovered thousands of terracotta votive offerings that were presented to Asclepius, who was the god of of healing, and his daughter, Hagia. And what they would do as worshipers seeking healing would, would come to the temple and they would lie down and they would sleep and there would literally be thousands of non-poisonous snakes all over the floor. And they would allow these snakes to crawl over them thinking that somehow the snake god Asclepius would heal them. In fact, the symbol of Asclepius was the snake. and We see this on the medical symbol today. The medical emblem today comes partially from this ancient cult. It's called the Rod of Asclepius, or the Latin is Asclepius. The serpent that's intertwined around a staff. However, I might add that, that, that this demonic mythology can also be traced back to, um, to ancient uh, Egyptian and, and Sumerian and Babylonian cultism that use similar sy- symbols. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that Satan loves to be symbolized by a crafty servant. That's what he, what, what he manifested himself in the garden with Eve. In fact, the Lord later describes him in Revelation 12 and verse 9 as, quote, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Might also add that ancient Gnosticism used the symbol of the serpent as the embodiment of wisdom that was transmitted by Sophia. You just see Satan's hands all throughout history trying to accomplish his purposes, warring against the purposes of God. And in those various chambers of the temples there in Corinth could be found, and you can see them today, clay molds of various body parts. You can see them as various limbs, fingers, hands, feet, lips, noses, ears, breasts, male and female genitalia, and on it goes. You see, these clay copies of human body parts were hung around the temple by the worshipers in needing of healing of those body parts. And what they did not know is that those diseased body parts were the result of that dreadful sexually transmitted disease of syphilis, a bacteria that can lie dormant for weeks but left untreated will eventually kill you. What a picture of sin. People reject God, they disobey Him, they live for themselves, they think there's no consequences, they think all is going well, but unknown to them, inside their bodies and even their souls, is an infection growing that will ultimately kill them. James speaks of this in chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And like idolaters today, the ancient pagans refused to worship the one true God. And therefore, back to verse 24 of Romans 1, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored. 
no doubt the, the, the macabre, ghoulish scene of hanging body parts in these pagan temples inspired the Apostle Paul to say about our bodies that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are to be a part of the body of the living Christ. Well, not only does God give people over to sordid immorality, but secondly, to shameless homosexuality, which speaks of the inversion of God's intention for sexual relations. An an inversion of our natural instincts. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function. That's a term referring to sexual intercourse. They exchanged that for that which is unnatural. In other words, that which is contrary to instincts that would naturally govern behavior. Verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The Greek term for burned literally means to set on fire or to inflame. And grammatically it's in the passive voice, which is very important. What that means is they are set on fire in their desire. That's the idea. They become inflamed or in, 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 how shall I say it, inflamed or, or, or just, just consumed with a craving to become sexually involved with, a, with another man. But unless they repent, the eternal consequences will be infinitely worse. And even for those that may not embrace that particular form of sin, but there are so many others. When man rejects God, he rejects them. He gives them over to sordid immorality, shameless homosexuality, and finally shocking depravity. Notice verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Depraved is a, is a Greek term that means, that means worthless. It means useless. In fact, it was a term used to describe worthless metals that were rejected by refiners due to their impurity. So what he's describing here is finally all virtue is gone. All reason is gone. People are living as if they are insane. That which is good is called evil. That which is evil is called good. That which is right is now considered wrong. That which is wrong is now considered right. And he gives a description of what this will look like. And this is a description of our country if there ever was one. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give heartily approval or hearty approval to those who practice them. Folks, you must understand that the satanically possessed young man that killed those students in Florida is a young man that was given over to a depraved mind. And you must also understand that there are millions and millions of other people 
just like him all around us. But isn't he just mentally ill? Folks, please, you must understand that mental illness is merely a theory based upon a medical model of illness. The assumption that a person is emotionally and, and mentally sick when he acts in an abnormal or irresponsible way is really one that you must be very careful with because there's no way you can possibly prove that. Now, there is such a thing as organic brain disease. There are problems that can be caused by severe injury, by a stroke or by a tumor, um, things that can cause brain damage, but that's totally different than this, that this notion, notion of mental illness. There is absolutely no evidence in science that you can measure or treat mental illness with no organic basis. And I might also add that it is illogical to conclude that a person has an organic illness just because medications improves their feelings. What a cruel hoax to tell people that there's somehow help through psychological therapy or through certain medications or certain treatment centers when there's no such thing as mental illness. The only true hope can be found in the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. My friends, what a heartache to see people deceived. Let me close with talking to you for a moment about the glory of the gospel, because here's the hope. The gospel, of course, is the good news that God saves sinners, that he transforms sinners. He makes us radically different, changes our entire nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. This is the miracle of regeneration that I mentioned earlier. This is what that young man needs and so many others like him. And when a person is truly born again, I'm not talking about the phony Christianity that Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, where he said that most people that call themselves a Christian will never enter the kingdom. I'm talking about the real deal. For those people, the old value systems and priorities and beliefs and loves and all of their plans are replaced with that which will honor God. And although we, even as believers, remain incarcerated in our unredeemed humanness, isn't it wonderful to know that sin no longer has power over us? Folks, this alone will stop school shootings. The answer to school shootings is not a change in laws, but a change in hearts. The answer is the gospel, and this is why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Wouldn't it be nice if we saw our politicians advancing a gospel agenda rather than some other political agenda? Wouldn't it be nice that instead of gun control, they talked about spirit control? Can you imagine that? Wouldn't it be nice if they would stop telling people you're deprived and instead tell them that you're depraved? But there's hope in Christ. 
You see, friends, we must understand that man can do nothing to stop that which is supernatural, namely evil. Only God can do that, and he will do that through the power of the gospel. Let me challenge you here in closing. There's an important lesson to be learned from these school shootings and any other kind of horrific tragedy that people experience in this fallen world. And that lesson is simply this. Be prepared. You never know when you're going to die. You will recall in Luke 13, following his discourse upon, about divine judgment, Jesus reminded his audience of a group of Galileans who were probably seditious zealots who were killed in the temple by Roman authorities while offering a sacrifice, a terrible blasphemy. And knowing how the Jews believed that disaster and sudden death was the result of, 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 of some terrible sin and God was punishing them, Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And he says, I tell you, no. In other words, contrary to what you think in your distorted theology, no. And he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then in verse 4, he reminds them of another well-known scenario, well-known scenario to illustrate his point. He says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell, we had 17 people killed in the school shooting, 18 people here in some tragic accident. He says, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And his point was simply this. Those people didn't die because they were worse sinners than others. Nor did the others live because somehow they are better than others. What he's saying is that in a fallen world, calamity falls upon people indiscriminately often killing innocent people as well as wicked people. And so what Jesus is saying is death is inevitable. Be ready. That's the point. Folks, we're all going to die. It's inevitable. We don't know when. Each one of us is living on borrowed time, right? And everyone who dies in a natural disaster or some type of catastrophe or some school shooting was going to die anyway. They just didn't know when. I know how people react. Well, it's just not fair that God will allow some to, to die and, and others to live. No, folks, what's not fair is that he would allow any of us to live because the wages of sin is death. And it's by his mercy that he allows us to live so that we can repent and believe in him and live to the praise of his glory and enjoy all that he has for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I would plead with you this morning, if you don't know Christ, don't wait another minute. Won't you agree with what you know to be true in your heart? That because of your sin, you stand condemned before a holy God. But that he has provided for you a way. And now today, after what you've heard, you know what that way is. And that way is through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. So I would, inc I would ask you to plead for mercy 
Because the real calamity way beyond the shooting is for a person to hear the gospel and die in his sins. So my friends, this is a biblical perspective on school shootings. This is God's perspective and this is God's remedy. And while we mourn the loss of those who have died, let's be faithful in sharing the good news, the hope that we have in Christ. Let's use this tragedy as an opportunity to give people what they need. And what they need is Christ. Let's do this so that sinners will be converted and God will be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sobering reminder that we have heard today as we've looked into your word. I pray that by the power of your spirit, these truths will penetrate even the most rebellious heart. That you will cause them to be born again. And for, the, for those of us who know and love you, oh God, give us an ardent zeal for evangelism, a holy boldness to love our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers enough to tell them about Christ. And finally, Lord, I pray again that you will minister to the needs of those who have lost loved ones in this latest shooting and those who have lost loved ones and so many other tragic events that we haven't even heard about today. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the glory of the cross. Thank you for your love for us. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.